0: Welcome back to the Prairie Pod. Woohoo! We're here and we're excited to be here with you. Mike, are you excited? Woohoo. <laughs> Your woohoo <laughs> was like way less enthusiastic than mine.
1: Well, you just don't know me, okay? That's that's enthusiasm right there.
0: Wow, it was uh I hope that comes through to our listeners. <laughs> it's <laughs> a high-quality enthusiasm right there.
1: <laughs>
0: so Mike and I are recording today over Skype. We are virtually away from each other. But through the magic of media, we get to see each other through our cameras. And so we hope that we're going to pr- bring to you a very good podcast. Because today's podcast, we're talking about the D word. You know what D word is, Mike? You know what it is?
1: Uh, Dalmatian. I don't. That was just the first thing that popped into my head. Wow. Or, why
0: is that the first thing that pops into your head? Like D-word. Dalmatian. I like, I like <laughs> dogs. I don't. I don't think that would be my first. I don't know, Dunkin' Donuts, maybe? I don't... Diversity, Mike. (laughs) Diversity. That is the D word that we're talking about.
1: Right, right, right.
0: I am super excited to cover this topic. As many of you know, if you've been listening for a while, this is like the Podcast Foundation. It's our theme. We bring it up a lot because it is critical to building a functional, healthy, resilient reconstruction that's going to play its part in the bigger prairie landscape. So... We also happen to cover this topic more in depth in season one in our pilot episode and in episode five, What Goes in the Mix Makes the Cake, where we talked all about seed mix design. So if we don't cover those things today and you want to hear them more in depth, feel free to go back to season one and enjoy the dulcet tones of (laughs) Megan and Jess (laughs) as we bring you some easy listening from the prairie. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting topic, I think, and you know, it's it's deceptively complex. I think when people think about diversity, it's they, it's a pretty straightforward thing in in people's mind initially, but really when you start digging into, well, I'll just as an example, like when I was looking through some papers, uh, you know, reading up for today a little bit, the some of those papers that focus on species diversity are like half math or not half but there's a lot of math there's a lot of scary math in those papers
0: Math is not scary Mike embrace it math, math is beautiful no. math and science hand in hand life you partners might... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay sorry <laughs> Too far You might All have right. you might have run screaming with a couple of these papers in terror
0: Well I math When you're talking about diversity, and in particular, when you're talking about trying to build something back with reconstruction, you basically are a prairie engineer, and that's going to involve a lot of math to figure it out. And we don't have all the answers. We don't. Uh, We're constantly learning from our mistakes. I would encourage anybody who's listening to not be afraid to try something new, because that's how we learn something new when you try something new. But I'm really excited to jump into it. We're going to go through some key research updates. It's just Mike and I today, so we get to really bond with one another. We're going to talk about seed mix oh, design, man. plants and pollinator relationships, wildlife benefits, and so much more. Mike and I may even duke it out to see who has the best diversity knowledge. Science.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, bring it. <laughs>
0: bring it. You sound very convincing, like I'm very afraid. <laughs> well, do you think we should jump in?
1: Yeah, uh maybe maybe defining diversity uh, again a kind of a deceptive uh deceptively complex to re- really define it. Um, it
0: is deceptively complex. And yeah. I even so if you're new to prairie reconstruction or if you're just wanting to plant a prairie in your backyard, I don't want you to feel like put off by these terms, because Mike and I have been doing this for a long time. And I know other folks have been doing this for a long time. And we still struggle with trying to make sense of what these definitions actually mean. Because when you spend so much time on the prairie, it's more like you just get a feeling, a sense of what it means when a site is right, when it's resilient. And then when you have to like, step back and define that, it's a little bit, intangible in some ways, to put it into words. So we're we're gonna to attempt to do that for you today because um, you know we just want you to be on the same page with us.
1: To be clear, you know you said we've been doing this for a long time. Prairie reconstructions I have not uh, just to be clear or you know even in, even just the world of prairie ecology is is basically I'm five years into it in my career. So wildlife ecology and forest ecology a long time. But I still have a lot to learn. And so I feel like I, I may be a bit of the question asker in this episode, Megan.
0: Well, no, I'm scared. And, like, I was expecting you to bring all this knowledge. Come on, Mike.
1: <laughs> well, I certainly, am. you know, with diversity as a concept in general, but, but applied to prairie and prairie restorations, uh, I, there's a lot I need to know. I need, I need to learn, Megan. Well. So teach me.
0: The first step is in knowing how to fix a problem is identifying that you have a problem. So good job. Thank you. (laughs) No, but and I don't want to undercut. I mean, I know I could. I'm feeling very generous today. And so I don't want to undercut your knowledge. Like, While you may not be a specific expert in prairie reconstructions, you are certainly an expert in wildlife biology. And so, as you said, all of those concepts funnel into one another so that we can understand the bigger picture of the landscape. So. What is diversity? Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I was just going to bring it up. I think when most people think about diversity, generally they think about species richness, right? They
0: do, which is the count, right? It's the number of species
1: number on a given site or
0: the number of species in your seed mix.
1: So even that, even that simple measure can get, can there's complexity there when you're talking, especially when you're talking about scale, like um, this, when you're counting, when you went, When you want to maximize species richness, are you thinking of anything from like a small vegetation plot that's like one square meter? And you can go all the way up, of course, to like the global level or a continental or a regional level. So all those different scales matter. And when you're talking about maximizing species richness, um, they they all matter. And it's important to define what level you're talking about.
0: I'm really glad that you started talking about scale and also Uh at that small scale right away. Because one of the things that we know from looking to the literature is that diversity at small spatial scales is really important for resisting invasion. Mm. So I always think of it like this when you're planning the diversity for a site, you want to be thinking at the level of a bison, you want to be thinking at the level of a prairie chicken, and then a chick. And then a little tiny skipper, which is a butterfly, and then the larvae. So if we're planting walls of grass, this is not good for any of those levels other than maybe the bison, right? (laughs) Like they're just going to eat that grass up. Yum, yum, yum. But in order for that prairie to be functional and renewed the way it should be, even the bison need that diversity there so i like to think about if we can't make it easily through a prairie then neither can these other levels so i always tell school groups like get your bison eyeball on now get your prairie chicken eyeball on now your chick and we make them kind of shrink into smaller and smaller levels and see how hard it is to make their way through the prairie
1: (laughs) so scale. i really like that those analogies uh, and yeah and that also brings up the topic of structure Mm-hmm. Which I think we'll, maybe we'll, we will address that later instead of now. We
0: will. We will. Okay. So, the okay. other important measure in diversity is essentially a measure of richness, which we said is the count, and evenness. So, how mm-hmm. those species are distributed across a site. Megan here, quick fact check update. So I wanted to make sure that I just take a moment and do a really good job explaining species richness and species evenness because I didn't do such a good job on our first cut of the podcast. And Mike and I are going to get into a really interesting conversation about this as the podcast goes on. And we're also going to talk about how the spatial distribution is also really important. So richness, just to be clear. Is the measure of the number of different kinds of species present in a particular area as opposed to evenness which compares the population size of each of the species present let me put this a different way for you so let's say i had 10 purple coneflowers on a site and i had a thousand pas flowers i wish right dream prairie right there but even so That is not very even because there's a huge gap in the population size of the past flower and the purple comb flower. So what we're searching for is populations that are a little bit closer together. And like I said, there's also this scale part of diversity and how things are spatially distributed, which I think is super important and also very interesting. All right. Hope this makes sense. Fact check update out. And I think evenness is the one that I hear most people um, forget or they just Mm -hmm. I don't hear a lot of people mention that one. they they associate diversity with richness, like how many species do I have? But then that second component of diversity, which is vital to any successful planting, that evenness, how can I make sure that I don't just have purple coneflower like one in one spot, like I need lots of them all across my prairie so that way I'm providing a lot better habitat for a lot of different things at all of these different spatial scales because that matters another uh, way that people refer to this is abundance of species so sometimes they sort of associate evenness with abundance but abundance only gets at a piece of it because abundance gets to the notion of how much of a certain species you have but to me it doesn't talk as much about how it's spread out spatially Across the site or across the landscape, depending on what scale you're looking at.
1: There are uh, there are indices for evenness that we we're not going to I'm not going to detail at least, but um, uh, if you want to go online and look up uh, uh, the Shannon Weaver index, or sometimes it's called the Shannon Weiner index, W E I N E R.
0: I used this index like way back in grad school and it was, I used it. It was the Shannon Weaver.
1: I think some people just call it the Shannon index. (laughs)
0: That's probably easier.
1: (laughs) Maybe best, but somebody's not getting um, credit for what they did. Well, we're going to mention uh,
0: Weaver later too, because he's one of the first folks who looked at all of the prairie roots. So when we end out this season, um, that's, that's where that fella comes from. He's Mm -hmm. all over the place.
1: Yeah. Do you think he's really the person in the name of that index?
0: I don't know. Now I kind of want to know.
1: It's possible, but Weaver is a fairly common name, of course.
0: It's true. All right. We'll fact check it. Megan here. Quick fact check update number two. Okay. We solved the mystery. Mike is right. It is not the same Weaver as the Roots Weaver, which we're actually going to talk about in episode eight, our final episode of this season. So the Weaver referenced in the Shannon Weaver Index is actually Warren Weaver. And in fact, while he builds on the communication theory and mathematics, which is foundational for the Shannon Index, he was not the original author of the equation developed by Shannon. Here's what happened. Shannon's work is summarized in a joint book co-authored by Weaver. The book contains two sections or two reports, which are republished versions of previous reports from about 14 years prior. So the first is entitled The Mathematical Theory of Communication by Claude E. Shannon. The second by Warren builds on this and is entitled Recent Contributions to the Mathematical Theory of Communication by Warren Weaver. Now, where does Wiener come in? W-I-E-N-E-R. Sorry for earlier misspelling. So Shannon's work builds on Wiener's earlier papers, which set the foundation for the index through his basic philosophies and theory. But Shannon is the one who puts it all together. So Mike was right in his assertion that it's sometimes just called the Shannon Index. And really, that would be the most accurate because Shannon first published the work in 1948. Woohoo! Go Shannon. All right. Fact check update out.
1: I mean, the the one lesson from this, though, is that any any I would argue that any single measure, whether you're using species richness or or one of these evenness indexes, uh, there's we should always be careful uh, about trying to maximize any one measure without thinking about what it means. And usually multiple measures in this case, both both. species richness and evenness should be considered. Agreed. And, and I think also it's important to remember that at some point we have to think about individual species and, um, you know, if all we're trying to do is maximize diversity everywhere, we're not thinking about individual species and their and their status on the landscape, um, we, we could run into problems.
0: What do you mean mean we're not thinking about individual species? Explain this to me, Mike.
1: A prime example, well, I'm not sure it's a prime example. Um, Going to the forest world, which is where I have experience previous to my job here at the DNR, um, old growth forest has inherently pretty low species diversity, at least at least vertebrate wildlife species diversity. Okay. It's probably good for like lichen diversity or something. But um <laughs>
0: lichen the lichens.
1: So if all if all we're thinking about is maximizing diversity at a local scale, we'll never include old growth forest in our management plans. And that would be a mistake. You know, some there are species like goshawks, for example, that use mature forest or or uh, uh, American martens. They use mature forests, and and so keeping that habitat on the landscape to keep them, to keep them in the region, um, is important. Even though it's not necessarily meeting the objective of maximizing local diversity, so those are forestry examples. Local being
0: the key word there.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. But it but it contributes to the bigger landscape fabric yeah. and diversity of what we want to have out there.
1: Yep. So.
0: Okay, I'm going to push us to expand our view of diversity even bigger than richness and evenness. I think that we should also, and this is particularly important in reconstructions when you're, again, trying to mimic a remnant prairie and build something back, you really need to be thinking about phenology. And that is just a fancy word that means timing of flowering. When does stuff flower? And so I will always advocate that you have stuff in there that is blooming for the whole season, early, mid, and late. Because that way you're providing floral resources for all the critters that need them in that specific time. This stuff is not rocket science, but it is complicated. They have evolved over thousands of years together, these critters and these flowers. And so if you're not providing them when you're building a prairie back, you're starving something out of your planting. And you know more about these uh, wildlife impacts, Mike but that's how I think of it. I think of it as I want to make sure that I'm giving you food and resources that you need to live because the more pieces that you have, and I don't just mean vegetation pieces, I mean larvae, I mean insects, I mean mammals, I mean herps, all of these things, the more that you have, generally the healthier and more functional your site is, because all of those things are playing a unique individual role. That's what I love about prairies. That's what I love about ecology, is you get to look at all the different pieces and see how they fit together with their environment to form this beautiful whole, which is the prairie ecosystem. Oh, I'm going to tear up, Mike. Hang on, i got to get a
1: tissue. Me too. I'm
0: getting getting emotional. (laughs) But so, all this from timing and flowering, but it is. And, you know, Aldo Leopold in his books, I think one of the things that more than at least in my mind more than any of his scientific research just how he describes seasonality and the changes that he observes on his farm and his homestead it really speaks to me because it's something that we can all share like spring ephemerals when they Mm -hmm. come on it's You know, we often talk a lot of times about how unsteady nature is because we talk about a hurricane or a wildfire, all of these things and how unexpected that was. But nature is also predictably steady in these reassuring ways as well when stuff is functioning well. So like when spring ephemerals come up, they're going to come up. The flowers are going to bloom. The rain is going to come. There's some... I don't know, reassurance in that. See, I'm just on a little soapbox here because diversity no, makes, well me, it makes me well excited. Put.
1: Yeah.
0: Look. Oh, gosh. Tell me something else um, about diversity. The,
1: the, the other aspect, uh, yeah, here we are. Structure. Structural diversity that you brought up a second ago. And I think often structural diversity and, like, uh, plant species diversity will go hand in hand. Uh, But mainly, you know, one simple reason is because plants have different species have different uh, structures, Uh, you know, like grass compared compared to most forbs, for example. You know, grass is dense, can be at least dense, and forbs tend to be more dispersed, you know, easier to walk through. And so those have that has implications for wildlife. It's it's interesting uh, for birds, which is a large part of my background, of course. People often associate a dense, thick habitat with good bird nesting cover, mm-hmm. and that's that's not entirely true. Uh, there's a lot of research showing, for many species, uh, perhaps even most bird species, that they want they want structural heterogeneity, structural diversity, uh, where they nest, and 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 in general where they spend their time.
0: And it's different for different species, right? I mean, they're not...
1: Oh, yeah. There's variability. Yeah. There's
0: lots of variability. This is the hardest... Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, it's kind of surprising. I think people expect nests to be typically placed in very dense places where they can hide, you know? But it it, kind of counterintuitively, they like openings around their nest quite often. And I think that allows them to see, uh, to sense predators if they're approaching It also allows them to escape. And so that's that's just an an example of why structural diversity uh, around a nest, around any wildlife habitat can be important.
0: And we've talked about this on the podcast before. And basically what you're describing there when you talk about dense nesting cover is where we were with prairie reconstruction years and years and years ago. And now where we're headed, which is realizing Mm -hmm. that we really need to find a way to incorporate these different elements of diversity into our plantings. And structure, I feel like I've said it before and I'll say it again. I feel like it is the hardest thing to recreate because when we plant prairies, we often plant them with a climax prairie in mind, but they're Mm. not in a climax state. Like when you have soil that's been disturbed and the structure and biological processes aren't what they would have been in an unplowed or intact site. That takes time to build back. And there's even research that shows that soil is probably one of the last things to recover. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find that very fascinating because I believe a lot of how what we're missing in how prairies progress in a reconstruction is that soil knowledge and understanding of what's going on there. And we're talking about billions of microorganisms that we need to study and understand how they're making these connections. It's not easy. It's not easy to figure out what's going on. But, and I also think the old model, right, where you plant like the big five tall warm season grasses and you plant like 10 Forbes and, and just, you know, go like this, brush your hands and be like, woohoo, that's a prairie is not, a prairie and does not function in any way how we would want it to. They tend to be very weedy and not able to resist invasion because they're missing the pieces that would make them
1: whole. I'll bring up that I think there there is there, there's potential for uh, species diversity and structural diversity to not always align. If if um, for example if if people think that to increase species diversity means to increase the amount of seed uh, or I- in a restoration or to increase plant diversity overall, or I mean plant, I'm sorry, plant density overall. Mm, right. If you're, if you're just adding more plants to get higher species diversity and therefore increasing the density of vegetation in a prairie, that, that could be a problem for structural diversity.
0: Yeah. One of the hardest concepts, I think, to wrap your mind around when you're in the seed mix building stage is that when you actually add diversity in, you're doing the opposite. You're planting less things because you need Mm. to have a space for all of those other things that you want to grow to be able to grow. And so it kind of freaks people out. Like when you're used to planting, let's say, 10 pounds of a warm season grass mix or five pounds, and now you're down to one. (laughs) that's a little unsettling because there's this question always in the back of your mind of, is this going to work? Like, what have I done? Because it's so out Mm. of the norm of what you might have experienced. Like you, you just want to be sure you get covered. But the thing that you have to lean into and rely on is that while you might have less of this one guild, you are fulfilling a lot more other guilds to, and, and it will grow. Like it is going to happen. And so you can't be afraid of those amounts. Plus we should be doing everything in seeds per square foot because a pound does not equal a pound for most species because they have different seed counts. And so to get a really reliable understanding of how that seed is going to perform, you really need to be doing the math to know seeds per square foot. You're still going to order everything from a vendor or you're going to harvest everything by weight because that's the metric that works. Um, a seed vendor has to be able to weigh something out to give it to you, but it's a much more reliable estimate to have seeds per square foot. So you know how this much is, seeds you're because, actually putting
1: out. This is because small seeds you could have many thousands in a pound.
0: Oh, like two hundred thousand. I think June grass has two hundred thousand seeds.
1: But then a big a big what's an example of a bigger seed that would have like a several hundred oh, in a like pound. Like milkweed. Okay.
0: Milkweed yeah. is a really big flat seed, mm-hmm. and there's lots of interactions there about you know are you a sea turtle plant or are you not? And what I mean by that, I use this analogy a lot because I just love it. Every everybody has that image in their mind, right, of like all of the sea turtles running, not running, but like <laughs> crawling to the ocean, and then you're like, oh, it's beautiful, the babies are so cute, and then seagull, <laughs> like that's they make a lot of babies because a lot of babies are gonna die. And so there is a similar parallel with our plants that make up a prairie where some species make a lot of seeds because they have not a great establishment success. And so but it's not always true, though. There are also some species that make a lot of seeds and they grow a lot of plants like Black Eyed Mm -hmm. Susan has a lot of seeds per ounce and you're going to get a lot of Black Eyed Susan. (laughs) But okay. you know, it's, you take these things with a grain of salt. Like if, it, if it's a sea turtle plant, then like June grass is a sea turtle plant. Um, You could plant a ton of that and it would not express as a ton of that on the landscape. So we need to make sure we're, we're using that practitioner knowledge, that scientific research and everything to kind of build the full picture.
1: I want by the way, the listener couldn't see you there, but you look, the, when you were mimicking uh the predatory seagull <laughs> that frightened me it really did you look you were going down for the kill
0: I really one of the one of the negative things about podcasting is that I talk with my hands pretty much constantly <laughs> so maybe it's a good thing that our listeners can't see <laughs> right. all of these gestures that I make cuz there're a lot of gestures <laughs>
1: No, that was an effective gesture for sure. <laughs> Thank
0: you. Thank you. All right. So we you talked about this before, but you talked about scale and spatial scale. And that's something that's really important in our reconstructions to think about, because if you put out a quadrat, let's say you put out like a one square meter, one by one. Yeah. Plot. Uh, and you look within it. If you don't have diversity within that small scale, but you have diversity across the whole planting. You're still going to have problems with invasion. Like diversity mm. is important at every scale. That bison, that prairie chicken, that mm. chick, and then the skipper and the larvae. Like you, you need it for all of those. Do you have anything else you want to say about?
1: Well, that's scale? interesting, and 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 I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you on that, but I am going to wonder. Um,
0: <laughs> well, you can disagree. I pulled that from literature, so that's not just Megan advantage.
1: Hey. And uh, we both know that nobody ever lies in the literature. Right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm wow. Um No, the only reason I wonder is because I know for a lot of species, patchiness, I'm thinking about mainly wildlife species, patchiness of habitat matters. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about structure. There's vertical structure, like having openings and, and heights of ver- and plants of varying heights. There's also horizontal patchiness um, where you've got clumps of, of plants in some areas, and so if you have if you have clumps of plants in certain areas, that can be beneficial and, and really sometimes required for some wildlife species. That's true and true. inherently then in those clumps you're going to have lower species diversity.
0: That is true. I think what this article was specifically talking about, and they weren't looking in a plot as small as one by one, but what they mean is that if you just look at diversity as a measure across your site level, and you don't look at a more finite plot level and -hmm. there's not diversity with that in that more finite plot level, I don't think what they're saying is you need to have every species that you planted represented in that plot. What they're saying is it, If you don't have those guilds filled at that micro scale, then something else is going to fill that guild for you. Like a cool season non-native grass like brome or Kentucky bluegrass Uh or something like that. They're going to fill in where they're allowed to do so. So I think it's more kind of speaking to that. I agree with you. Patchiness is really important for wildlife. So it's complex. How do you both create patchiness and make sure that you have good diversity at a finer scale and a bigger scale.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Study up on that, Megan.
0: (laughs) Get right on that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and the last piece that we really need to think about is functional heterogeneity. And you mentioned heterogeneity earlier. And so I'm going to punt this one to you for you to further explain that.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, tell me if this is what you're thinking. When I think about function, I think about things like uh, wildlife habitat. I think about things like ecosystem services that prairies provide for us. You know, they, they filter the, the, uh, the water, they store water, they sequester carbon. Uh, those kinds of things are functions that prairies serve. Um, so when you're talking about functional diversity, are you talking about diversity of those kinds, kinds of functions? Like, we want prairies that do multiple things for us?
0: Well, yeah, I'm thinking about the ecological processes, but I'm also thinking about the variability in the system so that, like, you would want to include plants from different families, for example, because plants from different families would play different functional roles within the prairie. And so, functional heterogeneity is just another way of really saying diversity in my mind. But you are thinking about how to, um, affect ecological processes so that they work, which is exactly what you just said.
1: Yes. Or at least that's yeah, what I mean, heard I, you
0: say. <laughs> Maybe I heard no, what I wanted to hear. Probably. Yeah,
1: you're right. I'm really talking about thing. I mean, we, uh, a restoration in, in order for it to be something besides a nice garden, it's got to have these functions.
0: Well, and, and you that's need
1: what to we look, mean. That's what we mean by functional.
0: Well, to make it even more simple for people to understand, this means that you're filling the guilds, So you have cool season grasses, you have warm season grasses, you have sedges and rushes, legume forbs and non-legume forbs, because all of those play a different functional role. And same, when you expand that to looking at plant families, there are different characteristics or traits that that family provides um, that lend themselves to that bigger hole. I'll give you a goldenrod as an example. People always pick on goldenrod. They talk about how it's like, Oh, that's a weed and it makes me sneeze and all this stuff. Okay. Truth bomb moment. Goldenrod (laughs) is not making you sneeze unless you have a general flower allergy. Like in that case, it might be making you sneeze. However, most of the time it's ragweed that is making you sneeze, which is blooming at the same time as goldenrod. It's just less visible because its flower is kind of like a green white thing. That's not as showy as something that is this beautiful yellow plume. Goldenrod and asters are a super important late season bloomer, and we tend to think of it as this weedy plant, but there are lots of different kinds of goldenrod. Showy goldenrod, for example, is just what it says, very showy. There's also goldenrod that's like less than a foot tall that grows on some of our dry hill prairies, and those are really important for all of our wildlife species that are out at the end of the season are some of the things that hang on the longest and so they're providing be, because of their bloom season they're providing a specific characteristic or trait that would lend themselves to the functionality of the whole does this make sense
1: it does yeah you and i really are we we, we are talking about two different ki- kinds of function oh, okay i think we are i'm talking I'm, I'm talking about like the benefits of prairie uh and you're talking about the different functions that different guilds, different kinds of plants serve um, towards the the functioning of that of a prairie ecosystem.
0: Well, maybe that's you know, just it, two ways we need to think about it.
1: Yeah, I think it is. But you know, like another example is is you know, grass is is an important uh, structural component for bird habitat, you know, for cover. Um, it's also uh, important for for like skippers for for prairie butterflies, um, and then you have forb resources that provide pollen and and uh, and nectar and important resources for pollinators. So the, that's another k- kind of functional heterogeneity that you, really you're talking about, I think, right?
0: Yeah, because I'm yes, yeah. yeah, and but it is the bigger concept of functional heterogeneity is what you first described where you're looking at how things contribute to ecological processes yes. and i would yeah. argue that by filling those guilds you are contributing to those ecological processes i think you're right so yeah. I, I would make a strong case for, like you're never going to hear me not say that you need to fulfill the guilds that is part of our main problem that we have historically not filled that cool season guild with native Mm. forbs and native sedges and cool season grasses that are native. And then we have all of these issues with the Kentucky bluegrass and brome and everything else, because nature is going to fill the hole for you.
1: So what's the main challenge with filling that gap? Why haven't we done it historically? Oh,
0: gosh, this is like a whole nother podcast. But mainly, one, it's education. Two, it's seed source. Being able to find those species in reliable quantities that you could put them out on the landscape is a challenge. Um, There's also a challenge with how we have typically done combine harvest of prairies. Those typically happen later in the season. And so, therefore, anything that is cool season Mm. and in that early guild has already dropped. Sometimes it's an issue of how difficult um, the seeds are to hand harvest because not all seeds, it's, it's not just like going out there and being like, oh, an apple. Oh, another apple. Oh, another apple. Like that's not that's not how some of these plants produce mm. their seeds. Some of them are quite difficult. And if you have a seed that requires very labor intensive hand harvest or you have a seed like prairie flocks, for example, that shoots like it shatters and then shoots its seeds projectile out across the prairie. OK, you got to put nylons on it and bag it. And then it looks like very strange in the the prairie as you've like zip tied nylons on all the prairie flocks so that you can catch the seed before it (laughs) shatters. Like it's, there are very, um, there are different dispersal mechanisms that make it difficult for a vendor to just be like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to grow a production field and have more of the seed because they tend to be things that are very labor intensive to collect. Not all, early plants or not all native cool seasons are like that, but that is a challenge. And I would argue that instead of us spending our time, this is a mega better soapbox moment, instead of us spending our time (laughs) combining common species like big blue stem and Indian grass that probably don't have the genetic limitations of other things, we should focus more of our efforts on setting aside that time to be hand harvesting species that we can't get, but are really important in fleshing out the overall diversity that's,
1: yeah, my, that makes sense. that's my that's my soapbox yeah well come on down um
0: no. <laughs> come on down it's slippery you
1: take ah. it, it's the stuff up there <laughs> that's, that, 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 that makes sense to me you yeah, bet
0: good i'm glad so the last piece is phylogenetic diversity and that's a fun word to say phylogenetic (laughs) so this is talking about including species that are distantly related evolutionarily this is one that i have the hardest time wrapping my mind around because i feel like we know so little about the individual genomes of plants i I don't even know like it's hard for me to know where to begin to make sure i'm considering this level of diversity i struggle
1: yeah that it seems to require a lot of like in-depth knowledge of these plants to ensure that you're doing that
0: it does and, and we're talking about okay so i'll use corn for an example corn is an incredible plant it really is and what it can do through crossing and you know other things is is pretty amazing because it's a very southern species but that's Look at all of the time and energy and money we have put into understanding the genome and the processes of that one species. Now we're talking about being able to do that when you talk about prairie for hundreds of species. Right. So I just look at the time it took for us to, you know, get familiar with that one species, which is an important agronomic crop. And I think of all the time and energy and effort it's going to take to fully understand the genetics of all of these prey species that are really important.
1: So, wh- why would it would it be worth going through the trouble of understanding these plants more in depth? I mean, why why is phylogenetic diversity important?
0: Well, I would give you a simple answer. I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around. Well, all levels of diversity are important, but partly because you don't want to have prairies that are closely related to each other. Because, again, it gets back to that functional heterogeneity. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. If we harvested all of our seed from one source prairie and then we plant all of that seed out, there's going to be a limitation to the genetic variability. And I don't want to be too graphic here, Mike, but uh, <laughs> basically what you're doing is you're creating a lot of brother and sister prairies
1: yeah, 10 and that, 4.
0: that are then crossing and then making baby prairies. And as okay, we so know... Okay, that's, that's
1: genetic diversity.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Right. And so I think that ties into phylogenetics where you're trying to include species that are distantly related evolutionarily because again, they're species that have evolved differently and responded differently. This is how I think of it, to different um, climatic regimes or other things like that, where they would be able to withstand some pressure differently. I, think part, <laughs> I don't, I don't what know I... if I'm explaining this very well, and it's probably because it's still something that I really, uh, I, I struggle with it.
1: Well, partly, there, so we're talking about uh, genetic diversity, between species and also within species correct mm-hmm. yeah. like the the brother sister example you just talked about that's that's within species that's why that's why within species genetic diversity is important
0: right right
1: uh, but between species like having um yeah well
0: i, I think species
1: that are fitness, distantly right? related evolutionarily
0: don't you think that is for fitness like how they were perform in different climates
1: yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't I mean, know. Maybe we're gonna have to fact check this. Well, maybe it's especially <laughs> important with with climate change, right? That that as we as our climate changes rapidly, like it is doing, um, species ensuring that you have some species in that prairie that can handle that change means uh, having phylogenetic diversity, like doesn't it? it?
0: I, I mean, that's how it makes sense to me, but we'll definitely insert an update here because this is the part where Jess Peterson gives a really good talk about this, and um, I wish she was here now because she would just set us set us straight. Megan and Mike here, fact check update number three, number three. Okay, so layers of diversity. Diversity is super duper important, and first off, I have to apologize because when we were talking about functional heterogeneity... I went down a rabbit hole and started actually talking about phylogenetic diversity because I was describing how important it is to have different plant families in your planting. Right, Mike?
1: Yeah. I mean, which makes sense to me. Yes.
0: It's important. It's a layer of diversity that we need to include. And we got this term, layers of diversity, from Jess Peterson, because as we referenced in the podcast, wishing that she was there... We phoned a friend. And so I chatted with her and she's basically saying that phylogenetic diversity, we can measure diversity in so many ways, right? And this is just how many species of each family there are in your planting. And that's important because like we said, those families have different traits. Mike, I don't know why I was overcomplicating this when we went down a long genetic road and I thought it was very valuable and you provided super important um, definitions and context for our genetic discussion.
1: You weren't overcomplicating, okay? I think you were uh, getting at all these different layers that you're ta- that we're talking about. There are we could sit here and try and list them. It would maybe make too long of a uh, fact check if we did, but <laughs> you know, you've got within the, the within species genetic diversity, the between species genetic uh, diversity, which is kind of the phylogenetic diversity, I think, right? The number of different families, right? Yes. Yes.
0: And so that's what you were getting at and you were actually explaining it really well. So if you want to think about including this in your planting, you do not have to know the entire genome of a plant. That would be helpful and really good, but (laughs) instead (laughs) it'd be helpful for many reasons, but really just include lots of different plant families. And when we're talking about functional heterogeneity, include lots of different guilds because all of that contributes to the ecological processes of the prairie. Woo! Hope we're right, up well, here. Thanks Mike. Fact Thank you. update out. But what you just said about climate brings us mm. into why does diversity matter? And mm-hmm. so I do want to um, I want to explain diversity in a way that i think will make sense for people or i hope it will so first of all the reason why we focus on diversity and why we keep hammering it in every podcast episode that we do is because it's our foundation uh chris helzer says it's the foundation upon which resilience in prairies is built and so he is a prairie ecologist with the nature conservancy. We give shout outs to him all the time because he says smart stuff. So I mean, this it's our foundation, right? But the other, so Kevin, one time he used to be our um, environmental review person who reviewed all of our permit documents. And he one what time asked me to yeah. explain diversity to him. Hmm. And I was like, he, he asked me to explain why it was important. And I just like looked at him and I go, cause it is get on the boat, man, get on the boat. And then he's like, yeah, I'm going to need you to explain it a little bit better than that. And this is the trouble, right? Like we, we get uh, into these modes where it becomes such a foundational concept or principle for us that we forget how to translate it because it becomes more of a feeling than a definition. Well, and here's that's a good point. Here's yeah. my definition that I gave to him. Are you ready okay. for this? I'm okay. Put
1: get it ready. on me.
0: You better seatbelt yourself in because this is going to be great. So (laughs) the more diverse a planting is, the better chance it has at long-term health and self-sustainability, which translates to lower management costs. Over the years, there will be variations in invasive species pressure, soil conditions, and climate, such as extreme drought or extreme moisture having a diversity of plants ensures that more species are able to adapt to these extremes and can therefore respond to changing environmental conditions.
1: Okay. I like that.
0: That's what I said.
1: I but think, there's an think, ebb
0: and flow of climate and you need, yeah. and, and that's why we have to get out of this box of this is what a prairie looks like. Because sometimes people have like an idea of their very favorite species that they like to see in a prairie. And they're like, oh, if I don't see those species, then my prairie's not doing well. When really, mm-hmm. whatever the climate is doing should change the composition of your prairie through year to year if you have the foundational diversity built into it. It shouldn't look the same every year.
1: That, that, that sounds good. <laughs> I, I think it's just important to have the, the, put the, the caveat in there. that Okay, caveat. Diversity alone. El- Diversity is very important. Maybe it is. Maybe saying it's the foundation is is the right way to put it. But it, it can't be the only consideration, um, especially when, especially when you're just talking about species richness diversity.
0: Oh, the, we're not. But we're not. We're talking about all, okay. of richness, all, right. evenness, all of the other richness, evenness, all the other things. I That's mean, how structure, we're it. Yeah,
1: structure. Stru- structure is mean. important. And again, that, that that idea of diversity at different scales is important like we we don't want to
0: all of that
1: we don't want to neglect we don't want to neglect a low diversity ecosystem that some species rely on
0: oh i agree with you
1: yeah so that's that that's that that is the danger i think of of overemphasizing diversity (laughs) what Um, are you
0: trying to say mike
1: (laughs) it can it can it could lead And I think it has, at least in the forestry world, sometimes it might have led to people uh, solely focusing on local diversity and neglecting um, uh, diversity at larger scales.
0: Well, hopefully this podcast episode is helping spark the little brain neurons in everyone to realize that diversity is bigger than just at a local scale. Yeah. See? I, I think it is. Okay, so the other reason why diversity is super important is because if a site is diverse and again, when we're talking about diverse, we're talking about all of the ways that we are defining it. As we have said throughout this episode, we're talking about not just richness, not just evenness, but we're also talking about phenology, timing of flowering, structural, um, different heights, spatial scales and functional Mm -hmm. heterogeneity. So that's just quick. Recap of all the ways we're thinking about diversity here. So, diversity can resist invasion. There are lots of mm-hmm. studies that point to this. So, if you have something that is functionally rich, that again, you have those guilds filled, those plantings are more resistant to invasion. Um, species and functionally rich plantings mimic the diversity in remnant prairies, which is something we always want. Planted species are better competitors of invaders if they are functionally similar. Mm. Um, native cool season grasses in particular are successful at resisting invasion to cool season invasives. And this is like a whole bunch of research, um, that was put together in the early two thousands up until like 2010. And Mm. I was remiss in saying this, Mike, but all of this is, I was remiss. I was remiss.
1: (laughs) You were remiss.
0: I was remiss. All of this is summarized in Jessica Peterson's fantastic oh, nice. fact sheet, which we're going to put on the website, entitled Prairie Restoration Diversity Planting and Seed Mixes. All of this stuff that we're referencing today and the literature, she has packaged for you neatly in a little two-page fact sheet. What could why be better we, than that? Why are we even talking? Um, we just read the fact sheet, people. Why aren't we just just reading read the, fa- the fact sheet. <laughs> okay. and, you know what we should have done for this episode? is like We should have put on our storytime voices and just read the fact sheet. <laughs> 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 we were like, now, Mikey, read paragraph two.
1: <laughs> Once upon a time. Once
0: upon a time. It was a
1: restoration. <laughs> All
0: right. Okay. All right. We have to move on. So we're going to move move on to our um, last portion of this main topic um, where we just, I just want to give a quick summary of reconstructions and the factors that affect diversity. And I want to put those into two categories, Mike. The
1: ones that are in our
0: control and ones that aren't in our control. This is all in Jess's fact sheet, too. Just (laughs) plugging that again. Again, The things that are in our control are the planting method that we use, how dense we're going to seed a site, what is our grass-to-forb ratio, what's our density of dominant species like big blue and and Indian grass. I would always argue that you really need to be putting those in there at no more than 1% of Mm. your mix, and I would say even that can be too much. Um, I guarantee you, they're going to be present and dominant in your site, even if you put them in your seed mix at a low rate. So, then you also, if you're thinking about density of dominant species, you need to think about density of non dominant species, your sea turtle plants, ones that are going to take a little bit to establish, or they need something that's missing in the soil to come on. Or this idea that we talked about earlier of we all want an instant climax prairie, there are certain plants that, because of prairie succession, should not necessarily be there in the first or second year of a prairie. They're, they're plants that are climax species that come on later. You have to allow succession to occur even in a prairie. And that is a challenge if you're only going to seed a site one time, because it's like you have to build in all the stages of succession into that one seeding. So that is a challenge. Um, the, the big one, inclusion of plant functional groups. Sometimes you hear this referred to as guilds that's those cool-season grasses, the warm-season grasses, the sedges and rushes. Yes, there are sedges for upland sites. Legumes hmm. and non-legume forbs. Those are all playing really Did you big. say earlier
1: season forbs?
0: Uh that is included. So okay, okay. so that's different than uh, my my functional groups. So that's my phenology, my diversity phenology, phenology gotcha. timing, gotcha. like bloom time. So, good point, Mike. Good call. Gotcha. So those things are in our control, though. What we put into the mix, how we plant the site, that's in our control. The big ones that are not in our control are the individual site conditions, the entire past history of that site. Every choice that has ever been made on that piece of land will contribute to its future. Every choice matters. And then climate. I always tell people when they're like, well, do you think if I do this, will it work? I'm like, tell me when it's going to rain and I will tell you when it's going to work. Like, or if I do it this way, do you think this will work? Okay, well, tell me when it's going to snow and I'll tell you when to see.
1: Well, that seems unfair, Megan.
0: I know, it's very unfair (laughs) of me. But if we were able to predict that, we would be way better at this because climate is variable. And all what I will offer to people as a, what I hope is a reassuring tidbit, I guarantee you, you are not going to fail. No matter if you try something new or however you set out to do this, you are not going to fail. Something yeah, will grow.
1: Mindset. Okay.
0: Something will grow. It may not be your vision of what you hoped it would be, but that's part of the fun of seeing how it turns out. And I know Mm -hmm. like I take this, I'm not saying this flippantly because I take our role as stewards to the people of Minnesota very seriously. And so I'm not suggesting, oh yeah, just, you know, plant a half a million dollar seed mix and whatever happens, it's fine. (laughs) Like, don't even worry about it. (laughs) What I'm saying is that we do need to lean in a little bit into the resilience the inherent resilience of prairies and nature, as as in the Jurassic Park movie is said, nature will uh, find a way. <laughs> we need to, like,
1: you, you said that just like you said.
0: That. <laughs> yeah, like it will uh, find a way. Like it, it does. It does.
1: You know, we're into some quality science when we're referencing Jurassic Park.
0: That is, I know, such a good movie. Such
1: real. Good movie. Yeah.
0: But anyway, Um, I I just think that I, I see people a lot of times they're they're paralyzed by the fear that they're gonna make the wrong decision. And if you make sure that you you follow these guiding principles and you have diversity as your foundation and your backbone, you're not gonna fail. I have done so many plantings in my career and I have not yet seen one where nothing grew. Like that has not happened. I even have had sites where they flooded for 12 days right after we seeded. And it was like, Oh man, we are in a pickle. Like we're going to have to reseed. <laughs> big this flat, thing. Yeah. yeah we- and you know what? They grew. I don't even know how those seeds hung on. I don't know how they weren't washed away. I don't know how they stayed viable under gallons and gallons of water, but you know what they did? Hmm. Did it look like I anticipated it would? No, but it actually looked better in that case. So anyway, Mike, Mike, do you think it's time to take this science on the road let's science to the made it to the part of the podcast where we're going to science of course we've been sciencing this whole time like super nerds that we are and i love Mm -hmm. it so this is where we recommend a book a blog or a paper and so i'm just going to plug one more time the diversity fact sheet that jessica peterson put together called prairie restoration diversity planting and seed mixes available on our website under season one what goes in the mix makes the cake. That's episode five. We always try to do a good job of getting our resources up on the website for you all. Mike, do you want to take it away with your science pick for the day?
1: Okay. Happily. Thank you. Um, the paper I chose is called Effects of Biodiversity on Ecosystem Functioning, a Consensus of Current Knowledge. So this is a nice summary of of as it says, our current knowledge on what diversity means uh, for ecosystem function. It is a bit dated. What was the year? The year was something like uh, 2005, 2004. Accepted in 2004, it says here. So yeah, it's dated. So I'm sure some stuff has been done since then. But, you know, one of the important things that we've been talking about here is ecosystem resilience or stability. And how diversity benefits that. So, you know, it's an important point to make that much of what we're talking about, the empirical field, like experimental data that supports that, it's out there, but it's not huge. Like it, in fact, it's one of the, one of the, some of the best research out there that supports what what Megan and I are talking about was done right here in Minnesota, David Tillman at, at Minnesota, university of Minnesota. Um, most of his research at can you remember the name of the, uh, the place Megan, where he did his research, Cedar something. Uh, we may. Cedar. Okay. <laughs> it, it, the exact name is not coming to me. Yeah. Point is the, the much of the research we're talking at a global level uh, for the relationship between species diversity and ecosystem resilience was done here in Minnesota. But this paper, you know, one thing it, it, it categorizes findings into certain and uncertain and like big questions. Um,
0: Cedar Creek. Sorry. It just came to me.
1: Cedar Creek. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. That's where Tillman did his research. Um, one thing they say here, we have high confidence in the following conclusions. And one of those conclusions is that susceptibi- susceptibility to invasion by exotic species is strongly influenced by species composition. So that, that goes right along with what Megan was saying, that we can't say with with high confidence that species diversity helps stop invasives, which is probably the most, if not one of the most important things we do in prairie management, Right. It is. Um, we okay. With it. So there is, however, still a fair amount of uncertainty when we're talking about ecosystem stability, like surviving climate change and surviving disease, and surviving, uh, you know, big disturbances. How species diversity helps those helps an ecosystem survive those things. There's still a lot of questions, and uh, you know, the the amount of solid Field or experimental data that supports those things is is actually kind of is quite limited. Like I said, Tillman is one of the few that have that has really gave us given us some good data about that. But even then, you have to remember he's he's doing like these fairly small experimental plots, and and in the real world, what what diversity does for ecosystem stability, there are still a lot of questions about. It makes sense.
0: It does make sense. I'm going to give you my Lego analogy. I've used it before, but I feel like it's appropriate to bring it out now. Anytime you're trying to build something as complex as an ecosystem back at a site or even a landscape level, you're basically building a Lego, except your dog ate half of the instructions and some of the pieces fell into the couch cushions. They're <laughs> maimed. The cat was playing with them. Like you're basically trying to build this with only a partial instruction manual and not all of the pieces well understood. And you're, and you're still putting in the effort to build it. It doesn't mean that's not worthwhile. We're still going to get something, but there's so much to know. And that's, Oh gosh, praise just fascinate me. That complexity and building that puzzle and filling in the pieces of the mystery really appeals to me. And that's why I really think people need to try new things so that we can learn different ways that puzzle pieces work or fit.
1: That's a, I like that analogy a lot, you know, and and you talk about restoration a lot, of course, It it is important I think to emphasize that much of prairie management is not just restoration, right?
0: Correct. There's remnant sites that we have to manage, too, because prairies are disturbance-based habitats. That's how they renew themselves. And we don't even understand the complexity of timing of a prescribed burn, for example. Like, when should we do it? How often should we do it? How does that impact all of the different species that are within a prairie community? It's complex.
1: It is. Still much to learn. Um, This paper... Also has a section focused on management implications. What we're talking about, and I, because of time, I won't go into much more detail. But it's that that section, the, the the beginning where he talks about what we know currently, towards the end where he talks where they talk about management implications. Those portions are worth reading. I don't think I mentioned the authors. The first author is uh, D. U. Hooper. And many others after that. So it's a big review.
0: We'll have it up on our website so you can see everybody and get a link to the article. My pick for the day is Persistence of Native and Exotic Plants 10 Years After Prairie Reconstruction. And this work was done by Diane Larson, J.B. Bright, Pauline Drobny, um, Jennifer Larson, and Sarah Vosick. Um, If you have done any work... Of At any point in Iowa or Minnesota, I hope that you have heard these names because the Prairie Reconstruction Community is a very small but close-knit bunch. And so I really wanted to highlight the work that they did. This was in Restoration Ecology. Um, <clears throat> and it's really interesting because it's the follow-up paper to their five-year evaluation that they did in 2011 where they evaluated these same plots that were basically put into uh nine former ag fields that were in Iowa and Minnesota and so they planted those in in 2005 in a randomized study design across these states and then they wanted to look at how planting method particularly um dormant season broadcast growing season broadcast or I believe it's growing season drill I hope I don't get that wrong um how it affects establishment of species richness. And they also wanted to look at um, invasive species, exotics. And so they took a particularly close look at Canada thistle, and they also looked at our two nemeses on the prairie landscape, Landscape, <laughs> landscape. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh. Poa pretensis and bromus inermus, which are otherwise known as Kentucky bluegrass, and smooth brome.
1: Smooth.
0: Smooth brome, which is not so smooth at all. Or I guess it is smooth because it sort of sneaks its way into the prairies. So it's smooth like that. Anyway. Yeah,
1: there
0: you go. Some of the key things that they found in this study, and this is what I keep harping on to people, and I found this very interesting, and then. Like all good research does, it leads to even more questions (laughs) that you want answered Mm -hmm. because you're like, oh, well, you found that. Well, what if this? Oh, we didn't analyze that. Well, maybe we should analyze this. And so that's really, really good research gets you thinking. So one thing they found is that there really wasn't a difference across planting method across the 10 years. Uh, It seemed like cover was fairly consistent. In the first years, it looked like there was a little bit of a bump for dormant seeding broadcast in terms of form establishment. And that's something, that's a concept that I would say is pretty widely known by restoration folks. The reason for that is a lot of our seeds need to go through stratification and Mm -hmm. a cold... Uh, stratification, a warming process, some need pressure, all these other things. And so if you put them in, you know, in winter or in late fall, when they normally would be going through a natural stratification process, it seems like that works really well to get them to then grow. And then we don't have to figure out all the details of what each individual species needs. (laughs) You're Mm -hmm. just hoping that nature will do it for you. So, but it was interesting that... After 10 years, there really wasn't much difference, no matter what. They did see that there tend to be more, it wasn't statistically significant, more warm season grasses on the drilled sites. And that makes sense, too, because some of the forb seeds are like dust. And so if you try to drill them in, you're often getting them deeper than they need to go. And so that might be some susp- suppression there. Man, I'm having trouble saying words. Okay. Play, Megan. This is the best part of this article. It's the best part of this article. Patients can pay off. So from 2005 to 2007, Canada Thistle just increased through all of their plots. But then after 2007, it just decreased particularly on the plots that had higher richness. And this is without herbicide. They weren't using any herbicide. They were just burning the sites uniformly, uniformly across them. I'm telling you, Mike, I need a cookie or something. Really struggling with words right now. So I think one of my take homes from this is all of the research that I'm reading lately about Canada thistle in particular, is that if you mow it, um, if you, aggressively spray it. Ultimately, you do more collateral damage than good. So what I mean by that is if you're just aggressively spraying it and not target spraying it, for example, you are wiping out the other things that are going to fight the Canada Thistle battle for you and you are just making Canada Thistle mad. And that much harder to control because it is highly rhizomatous and spreads that Mm. way primarily. And so the more things you do like mowing or spraying, it just stimulates its growth. It stimulates Hmm. it to spread. And so I, I really, truly believe that instead of spending all of this time and money on herbicide application, and that's not to say that there aren't times when herbicide application is necessary, but this study in particular is reinforcing that point that if you put your investment into the foundational diversity, it will fight these battles for you. Uh-huh. And we see that across the board with Canada Thistle Management. The more we try to do to control and manipulate it, the worse it often becomes, where a lot of times it drops out. And so I think that is one of the key takeaways of this paper, that patients really can pay off. And if you just let it, go through. The other really interesting thing that I wanted to point out is that none of the species richness that they had were able to put off cool season grasses. So this Kentucky brome and the smooth brome or Kentucky brome. (laughs) Help me. Someone Uh, help me. Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome. Thank you, Mike. So um, none of those levels of richness were able to put off that. The one thing I want to note is that the highest richness that they had was 34 species, which isn't shabby, but it's still For a, fairly like an
1: entire prairie.
0: Low. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's still fairly low when you're comparing that to a remnant site. So I, I do yeah. want to point that out. The other thing that I found was interesting is the native cool seasons that they planted sort of peaked in 2007. And then that's also when we started to see an increase of the non-natives and they didn't. Talk about this too much in the discussion, but right away in my mind, my question was: So, if you got your cool seasons to persist, would you see that same incremental increase? And how do you make sure that richness persists through time? Because there's been many studies that show that diversity declines through time. Um, So, how do we, how do, how do we as managers tackle that problem? So, I'm just leaving you with more food for thought questions. But I thought that was really interesting because right away my my brain was like, wait. But if we had more things persisting, maybe we would be able to um, do a better job at keeping these non-native cool seasons at bay. So that's my story. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Mike. Take a hike. Gosh, I need a hike after all this talking. I tell you what, to, yeah. what is the what is the saying go? Five minutes in nature restores the soul. Oh, let's hike. Mike, where, where are you hiking today?
1: Well, I'll tell you, um, it's hard to say. It's not that hard to say. It can be a challenge to spell. Higginbotham Wildlife Management Area.
0: Was that a dig at me because earlier I could not spell it?
1: No, I would never do that, Megan. Come on. Wow. Uh, Yeah. H-I-G-I-N-B-O-T-H-A-M. It's a wildlife management area. I mean, two reasons I picked it. I, I guess more than that, three at least um, one—it's a wildlife management area. So I know you guys have covered this in on past episode, but I just want to reiterate the importance of wildlife management areas in the state for prairie conservation. I've, I've, I think I've read the remnant prairie—that's the public protected remnant prairie—some um, large percentage of it resides in wildlife management areas, doesn't it? Have you have you heard of this stat, Megan? I don't know. Anyway, I don't
0: know.
1: Okay. Bottom line is, it's important for prairie conservation in Minnesota. In addition to other, in addition to other um, uh, public ownerships, of course, state parks and state natural, uh, scientific and natural areas, and let us not forget private ownership. But wildlife management areas are, are pretty key. Um, Higginbotham Bottom is, is a good example of that, especially up in the northwest, where we have these large. Relatively speaking, large chunks of remnant prairie. Um, it's got a lot of woody cover mixed in, you know, aspen and other species mixed in, which is also characteristic of those of those uh, prairies up there. But for that reason, because of the of the mixture of of, of mesic prairie uh, wetlands, the shrub component, these adjacent forest, it's really diverse. I forget how many bird species we had there when I did a bird survey there. Um, yeah, so it's diversity. That's that's sec- the second reason, which I thought was appropriate for this talk. <laughs> and oh yeah, the third reason was the fact that it's, in, it's it's up north. So Megan and I largely work in the southwest part of the state. Um, the northwest certainly deserves um, some emphasis because of the of the large prairie resource that is up there. I
0: am That's, my, that's my place. That was a good place. Well, I'm going to hike today to Ottawa Bluffs, which is a aptly named because it is a Minnesota River Bluff. And so it's just outside of St. Peter. It's kind of on a back road. I always think of it on like this the road that runs parallel to the town of St. Peter. <laughs> That's a terrible way to describe it. But it is next to Ottawa Wildlife Management Area. So mm. there's kind of this conglomeration of public lands right there. So you can hike and visit those. I really like it because it's an incredibly steep hill. And when I was doing my research uh, for to prep for this episode, I didn't know this, but when you hike to the top of the hill, It's actually you're next to an American Indian burial ground, Hmm. uh, burial mound, excuse me. And I didn't know that. Like, I had no idea. I have admired it all the time because it's this incredibly steep prairie slope and you can see past flower and some other really cool, um, really early spring bloomers on them. And it's an oak savanna, so it has all of these oaks at the top. And I have a special place in my heart for oak savanna. I know that might surprise some people because that, you know, is grading more towards the woodland side of the ecosystem spectrum. But oak savannas are the transitional fabric of the landscape. And I just find them really cool, like these big open grown oaks and prairie underneath. What could be better than this? I'm telling you, you. Bet. it's beautiful. You betcha, Mike. You mm-hmm. betcha. <laughs> So Nature Conservancy has done a really good job of trying to get rid of extensive invasion by um, woody vegetation up there. And they've been trying to restore the site and get more of that prairie opening. And it's really, really beautiful. Like there are not a lot of the Minnesota River Bluffs that are that are still in remnant. And so this is a site that's definitely worth seeing. Be careful when you pull off on the side of the road. It is a very narrow road. So you want to make sure that you try to find where the it's it's one of those dangerous roads where on on the one side, as you go towards the river, it's just the steep drop off. And on the other side, it's a little tiny, narrow shoulder because it's all hills. The, the river bluffs, if right. you will. So you want to be right. that, that's my safety message for the day. Use caution.
1: Well done, Megan.
0: Thank you so much, Mike. I can't believe we're at the end. I mean, people who are listening are probably like, "Thank goodness they're at the end because <laughs> this is the <laughs> longest episode of the season." But
1: they—they they can't be saying that, surely.
0: No, surely they're not. They're basically Like, could this just keep going? I hope that it keeps going.
1: I well, just, i want to, Megan. I want to before we before you close here. I want to—I I want to acknowledge the non-game wildlife program again, and and emphasize to listeners the importance the necessity for us, from my bias perspective of donations to keep that program running. Um, So yeah, just props to the non-game wildlife program. It's the best job I've ever had. And a bunch of very passionate um, uh, people that really love Prairie. I mean, all of us do in that, in that program and recognize it's the emergency really uh, that is required to save that ecosystem. So, yeah, it's not support the non-game wildlife program, please.
0: Indeed, and you can do that online, or you can write a check directly to the uh, regional headquarters here in Newell to support the the regional program if you wanted to.
1: You bet. So yeah, to, to, clear, to, to, to clarify, when you when you do your income taxes, that that non-game wildlife check off goes to goes to this program that I'm talking about. So good job. I'm done. I'm done.
0: Hey. You don't have to be done. These are good things. <laughs> like the reality is, is that we're Minnesotans, Mike, and we value conservation. And in order for that good work to continue, yeah, it does take money. Like that's right. so, okay. so that's not a bad thing to, to say. Well, this party doesn't have to end, luckily, because next week the season continues. So we're going to feature a very special prairie enthusiast. Yes, we mean that literally. Prairie enthusiasts are not just people who drive around getting excited anytime they see grasses and wildflowers blowing in the wind. Ah, a prairie! I'm enthused! No, that's not just <laughs> what they do. They are groups of dedicated individuals. They take their retirement time, their volunteer time, their personal time to educate, protect, and restore prairie and savannah habitats in the upper Midwest. In short, they're fantastic, and we're going to chat with prairie enthusiast and Minnesota landowner Henry Panowicz about his experiences with the prairie and how he first fell in love with this incredible landscape. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm
1: really looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, he has a beautiful German accent because um, he grew up in Germany, and so I just like could listen to him all day long. <laughs> when, we, when we talk about dulcet tones, I mean, this is truly dulcet tones. As always, you can find all the resources, um, take a hikes literature that we mentioned. This is a literature heavy podcast on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by the fabulous Dan Ryder and engineered by the magnificent Jed Beecher. D word diversity!
1: You bet. Diversity, not not Dalmatian.
0: Why didn't you do it with me? Like, why weren't you like D word? I feel like we're at like a sporting event.
1: A little off my game here. (laughs)
0: Diversity! Okay, well, you're just really not helping me at all.
1: (laughs) It's too fun listening to you, Megan.